Folks, if you have that uh, passage open before you, Judges chapter 2. So we started this series a couple of weeks ago, looked at chapter 1 and through to verse 5 of chapter 2. And that passage was very evidently an introduction to the whole book of Judges. And it told the story of how the people of Israel um, settled the land of Canaan as God had commanded them. Actually, they didn't settle it as God had commanded them. That was the point uh, when we looked more carefully at that chapter last week. Each of the nine tribes failed somehow to take the land in precisely the way God had told them. They kind of looked like they were obeying. And you might remember we said they, they half obeyed, but nobody, none of the nine tribes that we read about ever fully obeyed. And the result is a, a kind of a half-hearted, half-discipleship. And the result of this is going to be, and, and we saw it, and I tried to draw your attention to it as I read the final verse of our passage this evening, the outcome is going to be that the people live in the land among the, the pagan Canaanites. They live compromised, idolatrous lives. Tonight's passage is interesting because it serves as a, another introduction to the book of Judges. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, try to keep that kind of stuff in, in your mind. Feel free to skim over it um, as, as you have it open there before you, just to, to remember some of what happened in that passage. Tonight's passage serves as a second introduction, but there's also a part of the passage, and I'll flag this up for you, it serves as a summary of the whole book, um, and I'll show you that a little bit further on. The narrator shows us a cycle which repeats itself uh, throughout the book of Judges, um, and, and you maybe saw that. If, if it all sounds very similar to, to what we were talking about last week, uh, I wish it were. The problem is, by the time we get to the end of our passage, we're worse off than we were at the end of our passage. Have a look there at the end of last week's passage, or two weeks ago, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We're told there that when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things, he brought a hard word to the people. He had told them that they disobeyed. When he'd spoken these things to the Israelites, the people wept aloud. They called that place Bochum, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And if you jump down to the final verses of tonight's reading, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we're told that the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their son and served their gods. Two weeks ago, we finished with some hope. These half-hearted Israelites that heard God's uh, God's evaluation, God had talked about their disobedience, but they end up weeping, repenting, and offering sacrifices. But now in these early verses of chapter 3, further on in time, it's a much more depressing note about the spiritual state of God's people. They've intermarried with pagan Canaanites and are worshiping pagan gods. Those are kind of like the two things that God says in the Old Testament you shouldn't do. Tick. Tick. 
let's, let's get into tonight's passage. It begins with a, a reference to Joshua. We don't have time this evening. I talked a little bit about Joshua and how his, his shadow, in a, in a very good way, is over the book of Judges. He was referenced in last, the, the passage we looked at last time. We don't have a whole lot of time to look at him, but we're told in verse 7 that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua seems to have been able to influence his own generation and those who came immediately after him. But then we're told in verse 10 about another generation. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done in Israel. That sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? How would they not know about the Lord or, or what he's done? They, they do know. They, they know about the Lord. They know about his great deeds. That's, that's not, the, the verb doesn't mean that they have no idea about these things. They'd heard about the exodus from Egypt, the crossing, the Red Sea, the crossing the Jordan, Jericho's walls. They, they knew all these things. But they didn't care. These saving acts of God, all that God had done to rescue his people out of Egypt, to bring them uh, to the land, weren't, weren't bothered. Didn't matter to them. This younger generation hadn't learned to celebrate what God had done for them. Uh, we might say that they'd forgotten the gospel. The good news that God had, had saved his people from slavery, that he had brought them to a new, a promised land, that it was all by God's grace, a God of grace who loved them. They, they knew all of this, but they didn't care. They weren't committed to it. They had forgotten to keep this gospel, this good news for their time, at the center of their lives. The narrator goes on pretty quickly to tell us what happens when that happens, when you forget the gospel, when you forget the, the saving works of God. Verse 11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. At first glance, that's not a very exciting sentence. It's just there. But have another look at it there, the two things that are together in that sentence. Evil in the eyes of the Lord, serving Baals. Those two things are equated. Do you see what the Lord says is evil? The Lord says worshiping other gods is evil. That is not our culture's definition of evil. That is not what our newspapers will go after if they want to personify someone as evil. I would suggest that running after other gods is an entirely respectable pastime in the culture in which we live. And this is why we need God's word constantly to purify us. There's a definition of evil for you. To worship other gods. Straight violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
That word Baal, by the way, we're going to see it a whole lot. You might think of Baal as one particular god. That's not, not right. Baal is just the Canaanite word for Lord. It, it's kind of an umbrella that'll fit over any of, or, or most of the gods that crop up as false gods in, in the stories and judges. So what, what's happened here is that God's people, instead of serving the Lord, the word Baal, by the way, means Lord. So it's the Canaanite version. Instead of serving the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, God's people have started to serve lords, Canaanite gods, many lords. And what's striking for us here is how quickly this happens. Did you see that? It didn't take three or four generations. It wasn't, the narrator doesn't tell us that 300 years later, the scene had changed. The previous generation, the parents, they're they're half-hearted perhaps, they're flawed, but they had faith and they served the Lord, but their children end up serving the gods of the surrounding culture. Well, who's to blame for that? It's a question that I don't think has ever left the community of God's people before or after Christ. Whenever one generation fails to pass on faith to another, who's to blame? Is it because the parents have failed somehow to reach out and pass on the faith to their kids? Or is it because the kids have hardened their heart? Maybe we should pause there and have a vote, have a debate, get some people up to give the case for one party or the other. The answer is, it's both. Of course it's both. You see, our parents were broken, flawed, and sinful people. Even if they walked with Jesus Christ, they did not pass on the faith to you in anything like a perfect way. I am broken, flawed, and sinful. And I will not pass on my faith in anything like a perfect way. And even if I did, my kids are broken, flawed, and sinful. And even if they were given the best example in the world, their very nature would prevent them from receiving that. Folks, passing faith from one generation to the next isn't an easy or a scientific matter. Tim Keller points out an episode from American history to illustrate just how this how this dynamic happens. He talks about New England in the 17th century. So in the period from 1620 to 1640, when the earliest settlers were arriving on the east coast of America, if you know, if you know your history, a lot of those guys were very devout Christian people. A lot of them were fleeing persecution of some form in Europe. So if you imagine a, a new nation formed with all of this spiritual elite, if you like, from Europe, people who, who had enough faith to attract persecution and enough, you know, enough vision to go and 
relocate, and they're trying to create a new place. It's a, it's a promised land of sorts, actually. A new place where, where God can be at the center. That's 1620 to 1640. By 1662, the, the first generation had realized that their children and their grandchildren weren't true believers anymore. They carried a Christian name, but they'd lost their real Christian faith, their love for God. So they had to institute a thing called a halfway covenant. And that meant that if you were a baptized, a child who'd been baptized, but you'd wandered from the faith, they had a halfway covenant to allow you to still vote in the church because so many people had disappeared from the lives of the church. Commitment is replaced by complacency, is replaced by compromise. Let's stick with this question for a moment. We're, we're steering clear of the blame game. Who to blame? Is it the parent? Is it the child? Let's not do that. Let's have a look, though, at a passage where we're given some help. Um, so if you flick back with me to Deuteronomy 6, the passage where we started with our call to worship this evening. Deuteronomy 6, it's page 185. one of the great chapters in the Bible on this subject of passing on your faith. Deuteronomy 6 was written so that Judges 2 wouldn't happen. That's the relationship between these passages, if that helps you as we approach it. Let's, let's read a few verses there, beginning at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols in your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Three things in Deuteronomy 6 that we should hope to do if we want to pass on our faith to our children. The first thing, if we're to pass on faith to our children, we must love the Lord ourselves. Love him totally, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. God becomes our great obsession. I read a lovely definition of discipleship just last week. A disciple is a person who's dreaming of becoming like Jesus. It's pretty simple. But when was the last time God and a desire to be like him, to show his beauty in the world, when was the last time I, I dreamt about that? When that was the object of my desire? The commandments that God gives us, verse 7, really matter. We have to take them to heart. They shape how we live, how we speak, how we act, what we do with our money. 
we want to be people who don't mechanically keep rules and regulations, but love to do a thing because we see that the Lord loves it. We love to see these things woven into the fabric of our lives. Folks, if we do this, if, if, we, if we just can live a life where, where love for God is the defining characteristic of our lives, I think we're safe. I think we're safe from the one big criticism. The big criticism we will have from our teenage children is hypocrisy and inconsistent behavior. Young people and teenagers are super sensitive to hypocrisy and allergic to it. They can smell it a mile off. It's the biggest reason and the most fail-safe way for us to put kids off our faith. If I'm a hypocrite talking all, but all the time about the importance of, of being saved, the importance of following Jesus, and if all the time I'm running after other stuff, money, status, the latest leisure fad, my kids see through all of that. They see through it in a way that I don't because I blind myself and they just look right through it because they know who their dad is or their mom. If my kids hear me harping on and on about living for God, but see me live for other things, then they'll assume the same thing that I've assumed, that the other gods are worth it, that they're better, that following Jesus just doesn't quite deliver. So it must be these other things. The first thing, I've got to be growing in my love for the Lord myself. Second thing we're called to do here in, in Deuteronomy 6 is to live out the gospel in everyday life. Have a look there again at verse 7 and following. It talks about God's commands and it says, you're to impress them on your kids, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And then there's all that stuff about tying up your forehead and all. I'm just picturing my kids. Patrick's just started Sullivan. I'm just picturing him with a verse tied to his forehead. Go on ahead, son. Go and live for the Lord in Sullivan today. Is, is this what the Lord calls us to? Um, I think some of those images are probably uh, a little bit time-bound. I haven't researched that, by the way. I don't really know what tying it to your forehead meant. On your doorposts and gates. Actually, I have seen that. I'll try and dig out a photograph for you next time. The part of Germany where my family are from, my mum's side of the family in rural Germany, the farmhouses from the 17th century, almost every one of them will have a Bible verse on there, so it's been on there now for three or four hundred years. It'll have probably the name of the inhabitants who first built the house and the year when it was built, and then a verse. Maybe the kind of verse that I mentioned here two weeks ago. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. At some point in history, they thought that that was a good thing to do, is to have a, 
on the gable wall at the front of your house a, a biblical text to keep it right in your eyes. We're not going to do that. I, I don't have that. I don't have John 3.16 banner across the, the, the front of the manse. But have another look. Verse 7. Sitting, walking, lying down, getting up. That, that's just life. That's the fundamental everyday routines of life. You can't do much life without doing those things. What Moses is saying here is get, get the, these commands, get the gospel into your everyday life, into your homes. This is how we pass on faith to our kids. Not by leaving it for Sundays or children's activities or youth meetings that they go to. It's by talking and walking at home. Talking to our kids about their homeworks and how they feel when they can or can't do it. Talking to them about the AQE and the feelings that it stirs in them, the things that it does to them about their identity and where they're putting their confidence. Talking to them about friendship in the playground. Talking to them about pocket money, about the internet, about relationships, about sex, about work, about marriage. So there's a second thing we must do if we're to pass on faith to our kids, to get the gospel lived and talked about in everyday life. There's a third thing here in Deuteronomy 6. We haven't read it yet, so flick down with me. Uh, flick the page to verse 20. This is a, a short wee passage where we're told we're encouraged to show how God's great story of salvation is ours. And we share it with our kids. Let's read verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded us? You tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. See what's happening here? Moses says to the people, you've got to be able to tell your kids and show them that God's great salvation has been personal to you. This great story that they hear about in Sunday club that the grown-ups talk about in church, it's not an out-there story. It's a here story. This is the story of my life. We've got to give personal testimony to the difference that God has made in our lives. We've got to be able to say to our kids, I was a slave. 
God please save me. Folks, it'll, it'll mean being able to share our testimony with our kids. Why have you done that? I haven't. But now tonight I'm thinking about it. We've got to be able to show our kids not only that we, we gave our lives to Jesus, but the difference that Jesus has made in our lives subsequently. Claire's brilliant with this. My wife, Claire. Um, so our, we, we had Patrick going through the AQE last year, Sophie doing it this year, and she has a wonderful testimony to, to talk about that period in her life. I'll have to explain, first of all, that it was the old money, it was the 11 plus. And she's able to talk to them about the anxiety that she felt as an 11-year-old. And she's able to relate, relate to them how her, her dad spent time with her and talked to her about Jesus Christ and his love for her, how it's steadfast in all circumstances, how it's not dependent on her achievements. She's able to say, kids, as an 11-year-old, Jesus rescued me. He helped me. And here's how, and he can help you too. I've heard her share on occasion with, with young women who've maybe experienced some heartache in, in relationships. She's able to talk about the, the ways in which she met with God as a single woman dealing with all of that heartache that can, can so often be there. She's able to point back to that time in her life and talk about what God did in her then and has done through her as a result. What a, what a wonderful thing to be able to do. To say to our kids, here is the difference Jesus Christ makes. Let's wrap up this huge issue of passing on faith to, to our kids. If I want to pass on faith to my kids, I want to be growing in love with Jesus myself. I want to be able to talk about the gospel in real everyday life. And I want to be willing to share about how God's worked in my life. The truth is, this is my calling. If I'm a dad or a mom, this is mine. This is nobody else's. I can't delegate this. Not to the best church in the world or the best youth programs, not to Converse or Bible class or Breakfast Club, Crusaders, Scripture Union. No, not to anybody else. If I'm to pass on faith to my kids, I can't settle for the prevailing view. Here's, here's how I sometimes read the prevailing view. If I make sure that someone teaches my kids the Bible... And if I shelter them from the worst kinds of, of evil in our society, and if I make sure they're busy in and around church, I've done my bit. The truth is, I could do all of those things, but still not have been much help to my kids. Because I haven't looked at their lives, and I haven't shared mine with them. That's... 
where we want to, to be. We started with a question, who is to blame? Judges chapter 2 for this failure to pass on from one generation to the next. We don't know. The narrator doesn't tell us. All we knew is that this other generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Deuteronomy 6, this chapter that we've been looking at, as I've said, it's, it was written so that things like Judges 2 don't happen. But it's not a technique. This doesn't guarantee that my kids are going to grow up to be vibrant believers because they have their own wills. They have their own choices to make. Each one will respond in time to the with saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. But here's the thing. If we do have a question about what happened in Judges chapter 2, whenever a whole generation turns away, we'd have to conclude that whatever was going on in Israel at that time, that collectively Israel did not succeed in passing on faith. Folks, let's keep praying for ourselves and for this church family that we do have an authentic faith and make it our greatest desire to pass it on honestly to our kids. This is one of those moments where if you've been watching your clock, you're doing a calculation with yourself and you've been saying, he's been speaking for over 25 minutes and we're at verse 10. This is not going well. It's all right. Um, We're not going to deal this evening. See those early verses of chapter 3? They're just a a description of the nation's slide into idolatry. That's with plenty of time to think about that kind of thing as we move forward through the book of Judges. What we're going to spend our last few minutes doing is noticing a summarizing aspect of... uh, of this chapter, the, the narrator gives us a, a summary of a pattern that, that we see recurring in the book of Judges. I've called it the Judges cycle, um, and with a slide to come up, yeah. Just to give you an idea of why this is helpful, in the, the summertime there, Claire and I took the kids on our way home from our holidays. We went to Belgium and wanted to go and, uh, Belgium and France wanted to go and see some of the World War I sites. And we knew we wanted to go to the Somme area. But if you know about the Somme, the scale of what happened there is, is absolutely huge. So what we decided to do was rather than set off to go and see monuments and uh, battle sites, we'd go, to the, we'd go first to the, the visitor center at Albert, which is kind of central to that region. We spent about an hour and a half working our way through this really well-constructed museum And what we got was an overview of everything that happened in the psalm. So it was kind of like a summary form, an overview, but it meant that all the details we saw later on all made sense because we knew where to place them. That's that's what the narrator does here in chapter 2. He tells us what's going to happen in this book of of Judges, uh, gives us an overview so that we can understand the detail. So the first stage we learn in this cycle is verses 10 to 13, we're told that the people rebel. So that's 
yeah, you'll see little things coming up on the screen. Um, they, the people have forsake God. We've been talking about that plenty. They walk out on the God of their fathers, and they choose to join the people around them, worshipping other gods. Well, how would God respond to that? We're told, verse 12, that they provoked the Lord to anger. And in verse 14, we're told about the Lord's anger against Israel. God's angry whenever his people set other things in his place. I want you to notice a couple of things there. It's, this, isn't, this isn't anger against a particular race of people. This isn't racism. God's not angry against a particular race. In fact, he chooses to be angry against his own people. Sometimes I think we imagine that anger is the opposite of love. Um, but if, if our marriage partner of a lifetime is unfaithful to us, or if a child whom we've given so much to rebels against us, it's, it's not an unusual thing to feel, feel anger in, in that moment. Whenever someone whom we've given so much completely rejects us, the Lord became angry. As a result of his anger, verse 14, we're told that the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. So what we're going to see in Judges is over the centuries, it'll be different enemies cropping up, but they'll plunder and they'll enslave Israel. And we're told in verse 15 that the people were no longer able to resist. The hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. It's kind of ironic. The people worship other gods because they want to be free from the Lord. They, they presumably think that's going to be a better way, and they end up enslaved. You, you move away from the God who gives freedom, and you're enslaved. Next comes repentance. And look at verse 15. We're told there that the people were in great distress. We're going to see this time and time again. When the people land in trouble, they do cry out to the Lord. Uh, look over to chapter 3, verse 9. In a time Israel's been oppressed by a foreign king for eight years, what do we find? They cry out to the Lord. And finally, we're told in verse 16 of chapter 2 that the Lord raised up judges who saved them. The Lord sent his salvation through a chosen leader. Someone who saves his people from their slave masters and returns the land to peace. Folks, this, this would be, I think this would be okay if this cycle, if this was the story of Judges. If I could tell you, there it is. You know, it starts off badly. The people rebel but they repent and it ends up with peace. I'd be delighted if I could say that's the story of Judges. It's the story of human nature. But that's not the story of Judges or of human nature. We're told throughout Judges that the, the leadership of the judge is never heeded for any length of time after he's ruled. We read in verse 17 that the people quickly turned from the ways in which their fathers had walked the ways of obedience to the Lord's command. In fact, they don't just even go round. So, so it would be lovely if the circle stopped there. Even if they just went round the circle, that, that would be okay. But they don't. It just gets worse every time they go round the circle. It's not a circle. It's a spiral. 
a downward spiral. We're told in verse 19 that when the judge died, the people turned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. What we see in Judges is that the rebellion becomes worse with each cycle, the oppression becomes heavier, the repentance less heartfelt, and the judges themselves more flawed. The salvation and peace that comes is more short-lived. Folks, this, this summary, early in the chapter of Judges, gives us this devastating picture of what, what we should expect, what's coming. And the truth is, the book of Judges never really gives an answer to that. I'm kind of spoiling the storyline a bit here, am I? The book of Judges finishes entirely unresolved. But what it does is it stirs in us an appetite. It reminds us that we need something more than a judge. We need something more than the next human leader. We need a judge who isn't going to die. One who can deliver not just our bodies but our, our souls too. We're looking for a different kind of a rescuer altogether. One that we won't find in the book of Judges.